Good morning, everybody. All right, if you got your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, uh, we are continuing in our study of 1 Peter, and we'll be in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Um, for those of you that may not may be new with us uh, in this class, we just go through books of the Bible, uh, one by one, verse by verse, and uh, we started, I think this is our second, this will be our eighth lesson, I believe, seventh or eighth lesson in Peter, and we are in verses 10 through 12. The title of our lesson is A Great Salvation, A Great Salvation. Now, I want to start this morning, if I can, and once again, I got technical problems, so give me... Give me just a second here, if we can. I want to start this morning by asking you guys a question. And I want to give you a moment to to think about it. And I want you to answer it um, as honestly as you you can. What is your greatest joy in life? What is your greatest joy? What is the thing uh, that gives you the greatest joy in uh, in your life? And I'm going to have to make some adjustments here, and I apologize for this. What is the thing that gives you the greatest joy in your, in your life? Um, I think some people might say, well, uh, it's family. I think many people here would probably answer that it's, that it's family. Um, some of you may say, well, you know, it's my, uh, it's my job, it's my career, um, and that gives me the greatest joy in my life. Others of you may say, well, it's, um, it, it's, it's, you know, m- most of us wouldn't probably admit it, but there are people whose, whose leisure activities, their hobbies, be it gardening or hunting or whatever other uh, thing the case may be. I'm going to hurt somebody. Um, hold on one minute. There we go. Let's try this one more time. Technology, right? There you go. Everybody will say a lot of different things, right? Um, But what is yours? Honestly, down deep, what is your greatest joy in your life? Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 16 through 17. He said this, Blessed are your ears because you see, and your ears because you hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and they didn't see it. And they desired to hear the things that you hear, and they didn't hear it. I mean, think about that for, for, for one moment. You see, we are able to see things and hear things and experience things that men, be honest with you, men and women far greater than us wanted to see and hear and experience, and they couldn't, and they didn't. And as Christians, that should make us feel extremely blessed and extremely uh, thankful. Now, I said, as I said earlier, though, I don't think for many Christians that's the case. I, I really don't. I don't really think they see salvation as great as it, as it should be or as they should, should see it. As I said earlier with our question, if I ask you what's your greatest joy, many would say my family. Others would say my friends or my career. Some, if they're really honest, would say, uh, you know, it's my leisure activities as we, as we talked about. But do you understand all those things are joy limited? Do you understand that? Let me tell you, your family is a great source of joy. It is also your greatest source of pain. If you don't know that yet by now, you'll, you'll figure it out as your kids grow up. The thing that gives you the greatest joy can bring you the greatest pain. 
your job can be gone tomorrow. Your, your hobbies, your health, to, to experience those can be gone tomorrow. They are joy limited in, in, in a sense of the word. Listen, for every true Christian, the answer to that question should be this. My greatest joy is my salvation. My greatest joy is my salvation and all that that entails, my relationship with Jesus, the blessings, my prayer life. That should be my greatest joy. By the way, that joy is never limited. That joy will grow and grow and grow and extend on into, uh, into e- eternity. For us, I, I put together this little thing. Our life should look like this, right? Salvation should be the hub. It should be the center of our life. Everything else, our friendships, our career, our hobbies, our family, should emanate out of that. that that's the way the, the diagram should look. Yet I think that too many Christians view salvation as an add-on if we're really honest. We just see salvation as an add-on. It's something, hey, I've got a fulfilling life. I've got friends and a job. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> i got family. I'm just going to add on this salvation. <clears throat> it's an add-on. It's not the hub or the, or the essential core. I, I, I heard somebody say this one time. I think many Christians view uh, salvation like a life insurance policy. I'm going to need it one day, but it really don't make a big difference to me today. It's like a life insurance policy. So, so we obviously, we don't want to view that the way. And by the way, if you're a Christian, God has a way of refocusing your attention. If you tend to stray away from salvation being the hub of your life, God has a way of bringing your attention right back, and it's called the fires of affliction. It's called testing. It's called trials. He will refocus your attention on what really matters. And by the way, the more life-threatening it is, the more focused you'll get in a hurry, right? Just, I mean, ask anybody who's ever gone through a health scare or, 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 or has some kind of diagnosis, the more life-threatening it is, the quicker you get focused back on what really matters. Now, with all that in mind, let's remind ourselves of who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to people right out of the gate he calls exiles. They are enduring the, uh, under the uh, persecution of Nero, if you'll remember back to our first lesson. They've been scattered across the Mediterranean. They've been scattered across Asia. They are under uh, uh, persecution. They're being persecuted in multiple different ways. And we saw last week that his answer to their troubles is not pray more. His answer to their troubles is not, hey, you need to have more faith. And in fact, he never pities them at all. You never hear him say, man, I'm so sorry that you're going through these things. He doesn't do any of that. His answer is focus on your salvation. Focus on your salvation. Remember your salvation. Remember what this is all about. In other words, see your suffering in light of your salvation, and you'll say what? You know what? This is just for a little while. Excuse me, this is just for a little while. So Peter is saying to them, when everything has gone wrong in your life, when, when nothing is going the way you want it to go, remember the greatness of your salvation. Now, he's been doing that for nine verses. We've been in here, I think, this, like I said, this is our seventh or eighth month. He's been doing this for nine verses. Man, just talking about the greatness of our salvation. He wants to do it one more time today in verses 10 through 12. 
He, he wants them one more time because next week everything's going to change. Next week he's going to start talking to them about life. He's going to start giving them commands and what they need to do, how they need to live. But up to now he's just talking about salvation. So he's got one more chance in verses 10 through 12 to get them to focus on their salvation and that's what he's going to do. So let's read uh, those verses. Now, I want to tell you before we read them, he's going to do something, <coughs> excuse me, a little unusual. He, he wants them to view their salvation from a different perspective, right? And so he says, I want you to look at salvation a different way. Now, and by the way, he could have done it a number of different ways. He, he could have done it emotionally or subjectively. Okay, let, let me explain what I mean by that. I don't know if y'all have ever read a book. There's been many books written over the years on, on what's called the cross-centered life. And there's a lot of them out there. And the idea behind a book on the cross-centered life is that we should live our lives and we should focus on the cross. And the idea is focus on the pain that he experienced. Focus on uh, the, the suffering of Jesus. Focus on him bearing our sins. Focus on that as you, as you live your life. And the idea then is to use that as motivation to walk in holiness. Everybody with me? So as you go through the day, think about Jesus and dying on the cross and suffering on the cross and all that he went through, and then use that as motivation to walk in, in holiness. See, that is an emotional, subjective look at salvation. In other words, what did Jesus do for me? Now, let me say, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I, I'm not necessarily saying. I'm just saying that's one way to look at salvation, how, what Jesus did on the cross. But it's not the only way. You could look at it theologically, right? Peter, Peter could have gone back to the book of Genesis, and he, he could have talked about Adam and Eve and the fall of man, and he could have talked about uh, how we are all by nature uh, children of wrath, Ephesians 2. And he could talk about the need that we need to have our sins covered by the blood of Jesus and atoned for. He could, have, he could have hit all the theological points about salvation and we could look at it that way. But he, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't do any of those things. And what he does, for me, is completely unexpected. And in fact, what he wants, remember, his goal is to, for you to see how great salvation is. So in order for you to see it, he says, I want you to see how these other people saw it. He actually wants us to look at it from someone else's perspective. Let's read verses 10 through 12. He said this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. Now, if you're like me, that's one of those verses when you read it, you just kind of say, well, let's go to the next verse. Right? There's a lot of stuff going on. I'm not really sure what he's talking about. Let's just go to verse 13. Anybody ever do that in the Bible? Yeah, I read that. Now let's move on because I got no clue what he's actually, what he's actually talking about there. And it's pretty simple, though, what he's doing. Peter is asking us to get outside of ourselves and look at salvation from the perspective of someone else. Specifically, or namely, he wants us to look at it from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, the angels, and the Holy Spirit. 
Okay? And we'll walk through each one of these. Now, again, the question is why would he do that? Because what we're going to see is nothing was more captivating to those three, the angels, the prophets, and the Holy Spirit. Nothing was more captivating to them than salvation, and nothing should be more captivating to us. That's going to be his point as we move through. So here's the first one. He said, I want you to see how valuable salvation is, how great salvation is. And I want you to see it because salvation was the theme of the prophet's study. If I ask you this morning, quote me a verse on grace. Give me a Bible verse on grace. I guarantee that 99.999% of us would quote a verse from the New Testament. Yes? We would go to the New Testament, somewhere in the New Testament, and we would quote something, for example, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? We, we would grab one of those New Testament verses as we went through. And it's very common for Christians to divide the Bible into Old Testament and New Testament. And, and for us, we th- when we think about grace, we think about New Testament. When we think about law and rules and all of that, we think about Old Testament, Right? And we kind of we break them apart and look at it that way. But that's a real common misconception. You see, the Old Testament prophets not only prophesied of a coming salvation, of a coming Messiah, they knew that this salvation would be of grace. They knew even back then that this wouldn't be a salvation you could earn. They knew this salvation would be of grace and grace alone. Look at verse 10. Peter says this, Concerning this salvation... The prophets, and he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, the prophets, prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. What were they prophesying about? Grace. What were they prophesying about? Grace that was to be yours. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see grace all over the place. For example, we, we just came out of a study in Genesis last year, right? Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He found grace. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That is salvation by faith. He didn't earn it. He just believed. And the Lord credited it to him. In Exodus 33, 19, he tells Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will show grace to those whom I will show grace. Or I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That's what he's saying. I'm a grace God. I'm a grace God. That's who I... By the way, he said, show me who you are. I'm a God of grace. Right off the bat, I am who I am. In, in the story of Jonah, which is a story we all like, you remember Jonah's running from God, and, and they, the, you know, they, the sailors throw him overboard. He's swallowed by a great fish. He's, he ends up being spit up on the beach, and... All of this because he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He did not want to go to Nineveh. Finally, he relents. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. And dadgummit, those people repented. He didn't want them to, but he repented. Jonah 3, 10 through 4, 2 says this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he said, I knew it. What? What did I know? I know you were a God of grace. I knew that. I knew you would relent. I knew you wouldn't give those people what they deserve. Why? Because you're a gracious God. 
You're a God of grace. We see this all through. So you've got all this revelation coming to these Old Testament prophets. And they know that God is a grace God and a loving God. And they write all this stuff down and they proclaim it as the word of the Lord. And I'll show you a couple of these in a minute. But even as they're writing, even as they're putting all this stuff down, I'm talking about men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Micah and the list goes on and on. Even as they're writing it down, that does not mean they understood what they were writing. They didn't understand every word that they were, that they were writing. Look at verse 10. Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the Old Testament prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Searched and inquired carefully. Now, the words that are used here in the Greek are very intensive words. This doesn't mean they just kind of did a cursory search. Well, I wonder what, what this means. Well, I can't figure it out. Let's, let's move on to something else. No, they, they were consumed with it. That, that, this is all they could think about. They, they've been getting these great revelations from God. They don't understand them. They write them down. And then it says they searched and inquired carefully. The first word that's used there for searches is exzateto. I can't even pronounce it. But it means to intensively seek out, to exhaust all options in your, in your search. And then it says they made inquiries. That's even a harder word to say than the other one. And it's a, it's a very strong compound verb that means an intensive search and examination. The first term is kind of more general, but the second term is, is like, it's like looking at the minutiae, looking at every detail that you wrote down, trying to figure this thing out. The idea here is it consumes them. It, it, it becomes the, 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 the preoccupation of their life. They can't really think about anything else other than this salvation that, that God has revealed to them. And what is it they are seeking to know? Well, Peter tells us in verse 11... They, are, they make a detailed examination, a, a consuming search, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, think of it this way. Christ comes to Isaiah 700 years before he'll be born. You know Isaiah was written 700 years before the first century, or for we, we, of course, we changed the time then, but 700 years before Christ, 700 years. And he comes to Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah, write this down. Now, I don't know how he came to him, right? He came in a vision or a dream, but he basically said, write this down. And Isaiah took a pen, and he wrote these words. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before Christ. Two chapters later, Christ says to Isaiah, and however, however he did it, write this down. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? I mean, that's grace. That's grace. I've got something better than, than, than bread and wine, and it's free. Come, 
come to the waters, drink. That's grace. 700 years before Jesus is born. You see, Isaiah knows God is a Savior. Isaiah knows that he saves by grace, that he's a gracious God. He knows that somebody's coming one day to make this all right. He, he, he wrote all this stuff down, but he don't understand it. How can he? He doesn't understand all of that. So he has these questions that consume him. What person is this? Who is this person he's talking about? And when is it going to be? Is it going to be 50 years from now or 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now? In other words, he's consumed by this, who is this person and when will he come? By the way, go through 700 years and this is still going on with the last Old Testament prophet. See, the last Old Testament prophet is John the Baptist. He's the very last Old Testament prophet. And in Matthew eleven two through 3, it says this, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you him? Are you the one? Are you the one that Isaiah wrote about? Are, are, are you? See, it's still consuming him. They're looking for this one. All these prophets were consumed. Now here's the Lord's answer to that question longing, that desire of the prophets. Look at Peter, First uh, Peter 1, 12. Peter says this, it was revealed to them. Now, by the way, this is revelation. This is something we didn't know. He's telling us. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. It was revealed to those Old Testament prophets that they were not serving themselves, but you. You see, the Spirit comes to Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah... You're not serving yourself. You're not even necessarily serving just your generation. You're serving people hundreds and thousands of years down the line. One day, somebody will read these words of yours, and it'll burn in their heart as the truth, and it'll validate who I am. By the way, the Ethiopian is on the road, right? Philip comes alongside of him, and he says, what are you reading? You know what he was reading? He was bruised. He was wounded. He was reading Isaiah 53. And the man said, I don't even know what this means. And Philip said, let me explain it to you. And he did. And the man said, can I get baptized? And he said, yep, there's some water. Let's go. See, that 700 years passed, and you read those words of Isaiah it's serving the Ethiopian, and 2,000 years later, it's serving me and you. We read those words, it's, it's uncanny. I mean, how can, I mean it's, it's unbelievable. If I took that passage out of Isaiah 53 and took it out anywhere and I read it and said, who is that talking about? I guarantee you that, that Jesus. Je that's talking about Jesus. Everybody knows that. It's proof. It's validation. It's a, it's a burning truth that helps serve people thousands of years later. Now... What's Peter's point? That's all interesting. That's all good. But what's Peter's point? Here's Peter's point. If the subject of salvation consumed men like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and Micah and Jeremiah, shouldn't it consume us? If it was their life's passion to study salvation and to understand salvation and to grow in knowledge of salvation... Shouldn't it be ours? I mean, how much more should it be ours? 
You see, the fact is, I get to actually experience the things that, I, that Isaiah wrote about. I get to actually experience the things that he wrote about 2,700 years ago. They're mine. I get to hear them. I get to, 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 to see them. I get to experience them. How much more should salvation be uh, my passion? How, how much more should it be my all-consuming desire in my life? So that's his first point. See it the way the Old Testament prophets saw it. This is his second point. Your salvation is so great because it's a salvation into which angels long to look. Read verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The things that you've heard, the things that you've seen, the things that you've experienced, those things that belong to salvation, redemption, atonement, all of those things, angels long to look. The idea here with long to look, it's the same Greek word when it talks about the people that went, ran to the tomb and bent over and looked, that's the same Greek word. They long to see. There's a desire to see what's going on. They, they long to look. Now, why do angels long to look into these things? Well, remember, the angels really have one job. They're ministering spirits sent to us while we're here, but forever and ever they exist for one thing. Holy, holy, holy. They exist to praise and exalt and glorify God forever and ever. But listen, there is a sense in which they cannot praise Him the way you and I can praise Him. See, they will always be outsiders in the drama of salvation. You see, they've never sinned. They don't know what it's like to experience grace. They don't understand what that means. They're, they're spectators. I was watching a football game yesterday and thousands of people in the stadium, but they'll never experience what it feels like to be on the field, to score that touchdown, to make that interception, to be a, a, a participant in, in the game. Well, the angels are the exact same. They're, they're witnesses. They're spectators. But they never get to play the game. They never get to experience what you and I experience. In Luke 7, 47, Jesus said this, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. See, the thing is, the angels can never exalt, love him the way we can. Because he's done things for us he never had to do for them. Does that make sense? And in that sense, there are... There are things they just can't experience, and they long to watch it. They long to look at it. They long to understand it. They love, listen, they love to watch salvation. Luke 15.10 says this, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner. They're watching. They're constantly, I mean, I can just see them on edge. I mean, come on. It's like, like the crowd yesterday. You're on the, you know, on the one-yard line. They're wanting to score that touchdown. Those angels are like, yeah, get, get, do it. They, they, they love it, man. They, they are consumed by it. They, they just, it's, it's, it's their preoccupation, this drama of salvation that's going on in this world. Again, what's Peter's point? What's Peter's point? 
Well, his point is this. If if angels get excited about our salvation, how much more should we? How much more should we? As I said, we're not just onlookers. We're participators. How much more should we, who are beneficiaries of that salvation, love to focus on it and look at it and study it and grow in it? And, and, and it just becomes, the, it becomes our joy. It becomes the center, the hub of our life. How much more should we say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done for us. That's how Peter started that letter. Number three, our salvation is so great. Prophets, Old Testament prophets were consumed by it. Angels are still in all of it. But it is a salvation to you brought to you by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Let me very quickly, we've got about 15 minutes, let me very quickly simplify Old Testament prophecy for you. Let's let's make it really simple. First of all, the author of any Old Testament prophecy is always the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 says this, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the author of any Old Testament prophecy is always the Holy Spirit. He is inspiring. He is moving upon men. And the theme of Old Testament prophecy is the redemption of sinners through Jesus Christ. That's what the whole, listen, that's what the whole Bible is about. That's the theme of the whole Bible is the redemption of sinners through Jesus Christ. That's the theme. Luke 24, 27, it says this, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them and all the scriptures the things concerning... By the way, the scriptures Jesus was expounding was what? The Old Testament. There was no New Testament. He opened the Old Testament. He says, see, this is about me. This is about me. This is about me. This is all about me. The Old Testament, all the prophets, it says there, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he said, this is about me. So the Old Testament is all about him. From Genesis to Revelation, from corruption to glory. Every word that is written is written by the Holy Spirit. Every revelation comes through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to what Peter says in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. When you read the Bible, sometimes there's words like redemption and atonement and salvation that are big words and 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 they mean a lot sometimes there's very simple words and if you just look at them they don't mean a lot but they get repeated over and over and over and if you ever see a word that gets repeated you might want to take a look at that word because that word might not be significant in itself but its repetition makes it significance in verse 12 there's a word that gets repeated over and over and that word is you 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 over and over. And the point is pretty simple. Even though this message of God's salvation is the greatest message in human history, even though the prophets themselves are preoccupied with it, obsessed with it, and the angels themselves, they, they can't get enough of it, even though those things are true, it, doesn't, you, it does you absolutely no good unless you take hold of it unless you hear it and you believe it and you participate in it. Think about this for one second. Let's go back. Isaiah was wrote, written roughly 2,700 years ago. Just one book, 2,700 years ago. 
book of Job, probably written 3,000 years ago. Down through the centuries, down through time, just going on and on in billions and billions of people. The Holy Spirit inspired men to write the Bible. Okay? Starting again, book of Job, book of Isaiah. Forty different authors wrote over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. They're businessmen and traders and fishermen and soldiers and preachers and kings and all across the, the spectrum. They're, they're human beings from all walks of life. They're living under different government, different cultures, different philosophies. It ends up with 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 30, over 31,000 verses. And yet through all of that, the Holy Spirit makes sure that they weave together in perfect harmony. The Holy Spirit is doing that. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. That same Holy Spirit, who for all those millennia, 3,000 years, has been touching this man and that man and this person and that person, you write this, you write that, and he's weaving it all together in this book, that same Holy Spirit one day ordains that the message in this book is preached to you and you and you. And you, me, in Walcola County, me. He had ordains that it's preached to me. The Holy Spirit, these incredible men, Jeremiah and Isaiah, and all of these unbelievable things happen, and the Holy Spirit, who orchestrates it all, ordains that the message comes to little old me. Now the question is, do I believe it? Have I taken hold of it? You see, this is the right place to end this lesson. Because that's it. what Peter wrote about 2,000 years ago is exactly what's happening right now. I am preaching the good news of salvation to you. Right now, this morning. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And this good news, the news that you're hearing this morning in this room in Crawfordville, Florida, is of infinite value. This is more valuable than anything you even, anything you've got in your wallet, anything you own, any, anything you'll ever own, any message you'll ever know. This is it. This is the highest infinite value of anything you'll ever come across. But it's not just me saying these words. Peter says it's the Holy Spirit through me. Any man that gets up and preaches and teaches the Word of God, it's the Holy Spirit ordaining and orchestrating that message to be preached to you. You. That's what he wants us to, to see. The Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, ordains a man to speak the word. See, the point is, though, do you believe it? Do you take hold of it? Is it the hub of your life? Is it the center? Is this your everything? Is this your greatest joy? I began this lesson by asking that question, right? What is, that, what is it that gives you the most joy in life? I'm going to be honest with you. You can be religious. You can be involved in Christian ministry. You can, you can be a church member. You can have been baptized 40 years ago. You can be all those things. But if your honest answer this morning, this is not my greatest joy, you need to really take a hard look at yourself. You really need to take a hard look at yourself if this is not your greatest joy. And I pray that's not the case. 
Again, we have a salvation that was the, the obsession of the prophets. It, the, 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 the angels themselves are in awe of it. The Holy Spirit himself has orchestrated it for thousands of years and brought that message to you. I think that's Peter's point. Shouldn't we be preoccupied with it as well? I know I am. All right, next week, real quickly. Next week, we're going to change. If you, if you got your Bibles open and you just peek over to verse 13, you're going to notice that verse 13 starts with, therefore, therefore, therefore. Now listen, in the New Testament, therefore often introduces commands following a bunch of doctrine. Okay, and we'll talk about that more next week. It always introduces commands where the author has just gave you a bunch of doctrine about salvation or about whatever, right? Which is exactly what Peter has done. Now, we'll talk about this next week. <coughs> a lot of people don't like doctrine. That's boring. But let me tell you, in the New Testament, doctrine and practice are like this. Doctrine and practice are like this. See, doctrine is the standard of our conduct, is the means of our conduct, is the outcome of our conduct, the basis for our conduct, and the motivation for our conduct. All that stuff he just told us about salvation, he says, therefore, walk worthy. Therefore, go do these things because of that. And see, that's exactly what Peter's doing. He's used verses 3 through 12 to lay a doctrinal foundation. He said in verse 3, since God great, God's great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Verse 4, since we have been born again to obtain an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. Verse 5, since we are being protected for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, since we presently suffer various trials so that our uh, faith may be proven genuine to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, since we are obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. And today, verses 10 through 12, since our salvation is so incredible that the Old Testament prophets were consumed by it and angels are in awe of it, Peter says, therefore. Therefore. And then he issues his first command in verse 13. Next week, we'll turn to set your hope. Let's pray.